Greetings, devious dungeon masters. Welcome back to the Knights and Nerds podcast. This is Tim, your dungeon master, and I want to say thank you very much for listening to this. We are back with another campaign planning episode. And I'm excited, in case you can't tell. We're going to get into some good stuff today, I hope. First, before we do a quick recap of what's happened recently, I do want to give a shout out to Bob on Facebook for writing us a very kind recommendation, and Darth Nithar on iTunes for writing us a review and giving us a five-star rating. Thank you, both of you, so much. means a lot. If you're listening to this and you're just wanting to listen to the campaign actual play episodes, we're going to be going into spoiler territory today, so maybe skip over this one. But if you are a dungeon master and you want to get a sneak peek of what I'm planning, then yeah, we're about to get into it. What I'm wanting to accomplish with these episodes, uh, same as before, uh, just kind of show my process of planning what I thought would happen, what did happen, and how I'm going to adjust. And you know what? I don't mean to convey that my way of planning or writing is the best way. Maybe you disagree with me entirely, and these are more helpful to you as a guide of what not to do. And uh, you know what? As long as you're getting something out of it, I'm happy. So here we go. If you don't want to know any spoilers, this is your final warning. All right, if you're still listening to this and you haven't joined our Dungeon Master Facebook group, we're going to be going into some more detail, I would imagine, pretty soon, hopefully within the next few weeks, covering some real big spoiler stuff. So if you do want to carry on this discussion, head on over to our Facebook page, Knights and Nerds Podcast, and join the Dungeon Master only group. Okay, first off, let's get into our recap. Let's go back to episode 7, The Iron Perimeter. Uh, if I recall correctly, really no combat in this episode. It's more of an exploration slash problem-solving episode. The players found that the Warriors Alliance was surrounded by a large number of Iron Guardian sentries, which was preventing them from going in and getting a clue that they needed, uh, the clue that would lead them to a sort of secret passage entrance to the underground beneath Pharaoh's Point, where people are not supposed to go. So as you can probably tell, there were two ways that the players were going to approach this, an easy way and a much more difficult way. And to be honest, I wasn't quite sure which of the two options they were going to take. I suppose I would have been a bit more surprised had they gone for the more difficult option, which would be to help Elasha with what she had said that she needed to do, which would be to get back inside. And there were also hints that there was a potential sort of jailbreak, so to speak, being planned by the members of the Warriors Alliance. I wanted to throw this in there just so that the players had maybe more, a little bit more to work with than just going in, getting after one thing. And perhaps if I had had Elasha really ask them more pointedly for help, maybe they would have gone about things a bit differently. Uh, but I didn't want to sidetrack them all that much. I mean, they had, uh, they were just coming off of this uh, sort of tangent with the Thieves Guild, and I sort of wanted to allow them to keep going with the, the main quest. But uh, I did want to put out this alternate option in terms of helping the Warriors Alliance uh, as a possibility that they could explore if they chose. They chose the easier approach, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. They got done what they needed to get done. But as a dungeon master, now I have to sort of consider the consequences of what they have allowed to happen, 
or what they have allowed to continue, I should say, namely the imprisonment of many of the members of the Warriors Alliance. The main consequence, I think, at this point is that they're going to have, I suppose, a couple fewer allies. Of course, every action with a non-player character in this game is a chance for them to maybe win another person's trust, uh, somebody that they can potentially call on for assistance in the future because uh, once they start to square off against the villains, they are really going to need all the help that they can get. So maybe in a few weeks or a month or two, whenever they uh, get back to the surface and, you know, need help, maybe Alasha won't be there. Maybe Alasha will have been arrested or captured or killed. Who knows? We'll decide that, you know what, we'll, we'll use that piece. We'll just sort of keep that in our back pocket and use it at some point in the future in the way that we can use it most effectively. So that was my takeaway from Episodes 7 and 8, The Iron Perimeter and Infiltration. Episode 9, <sighs> what happened? Remember in the last campaign planning episode, I said, don't put an antagonist or a villain in front of your players unless you're prepared for that character to die. And that is exactly what happened with Mago, the doppelganger. To be honest, I, I only introduced Mago in the form of Owen to start foreshadowing. I really did not expect uh, Gilly to go up and try to put Mago to sleep. And I certainly didn't expect them to fight him to the point where he died. But you know what? It was difficult for me to disallow or to just hand wave Mago's death because Gilly had two crits. And you know what? You gotta, you gotta respect the crit. You gotta respect the crit. And I recall saying that I had jotted down some character notes about Mago, and that he's very overconfident. He hadn't failed Agaran before, so he's not used to failure. So he really underestimated the players in this case. And I think the only thing that I regret about it is that I didn't have a chance to f flesh that out a bit more, you know, for the players to really take advantage of that weakness. Knowingly, it was just sort of incidentally that that happened that way. But you know what? I'm going to use this failure and turn it into a victory of some kind. As you may have heard at the beginning of episode 10, in a sort of dramatic reading that I did, the Dragonborn have recovered Mago's body and took it to Erizax. And Erizax began to cast a spell. Now, out of game, Matt and Candace otherwise known as Spruce Lee and Fiance, both texted me, assuming that Erizax is casting something to bring Mago back to life. Uh, and you know what? I hadn't even thought of that. What do you guys think he's casting? Well, I'll tell you. He is casting Speak With Dead. I didn't tell, <laughs> I didn't tell them that, no, he's not casting Raise Dead or Resurrection or whatever spell it is that brings somebody back to life. My view on that is that Agrand would be displeased with Mago's failure and would let him die or let him stay dead. But Erizak's casting Speak With Dead would really remove any ambiguity as to what Erizax and Agrand both know. Uh, they would know who killed Mago, they would know who exactly is harboring Elwyn, uh, and that certainly will come back to haunt the players. 
So in episode nine, aside from killing Mago, who I really wanted to have a bigger part, but oh well, he's dead. Uh, the players interpreted a clue, found the secret passage, disarmed some traps, and you know what? We are well on our way to a good old-fashioned subterranean adventure, which leads right into episode 10. In episode 10, I had a few... I had asked myself a few questions, and I'd be keen to get your feedback on in the Facebook group, or you can comment uh, wherever. Um, question number one. Uh, I guess the most questions I had were surrounding the trap room that I had quote-unquote designed. The first question I had was regarding the doors. I had just imagined that these were heavy stone doors that just fell into place. There's no real locking mechanism uh, that kept them there. And Candace tried to cast Knock, and I did not see that working based on the wording of the spell. Do you guys think that was the right call? Kind of scratching my head. Uh, since Faye is a very combat-averse character, should I have allowed that to work? Was my interpretation of the wording of Nock incorrect? Uh, what do you guys think? So that was question one. You know, I still am leaning towards that my interpretation was correct, that I made the right call. But I think if I had allowed it to work, I would not have regretted it. But uh, I'm curious to see what anyone else would have done or has done, maybe in a similar situation in your own games. Here's something that I did think of after the fact. Not really a question, but I think the lightning should have definitely had a chance to stun the players. In one of the previous campaign planning episodes, I had said when you're designing an encounter, try using something that drops a condition on one of your players. I think I was referring to the use of nets. And here I am not even listening to my own advice. I definitely should have thrown in the stun condition at, in some way at some point. Oh well. Missed opportunity. Learning experience. The next time I design traps, wherever, however that happens, I'll try to remember this. I probably won't. I probably won't remember, but I'll try. Another question I had about this trap room. Should I have not allowed the players to remove the mirrors from the wall? Or should I have made it much more difficult? Uh, I was kind of taken a little bit off guard that they went immediately to try to remove the mirrors instead of trying to find just find the way out. Uh, they really seem to be uninterested or reluctant to go for the grate in the middle of the room. Another question I had was, should the lightning orb be immune to lightning damage? I'm of two minds of this. Um, you know what? It's... I can see in some way that it makes sense, on the other hand. And you know what? It was a good idea to angle the mirror back. I thought that was, I thought that was clever. So you know what? I, I think, again, I don't regret the call I made, but uh, what, what do you guys think? Maybe somewhere in the rules in 5th edition or maybe a different edition. Uh, I know there are supplements with different traps. I don't know if these sorts of lightning contraptions have historically been immune to lightning, but uh, what would you guys have done in that case? So yeah, I guess with the trap room, I was I was happy that everyone was problem solving, working towards solving the problem creatively. What I'm unsure about is whether or not uh, I could have made it a little bit more engaging, a little bit more challenging by uh, by making a few adjustments to the mirrors, to you know whether or not knock should have worked. Uh, something like that. Maybe there was a missing element altogether. Something, though, that I do want to point out. In that episode, you can hear that Tom is making a connection between the lightning orb 
and the grate that has water underneath. So he clearly thought that they were trapped in this room and that water was going to start rising and that they were going to be probably ankle deep or shin deep in water and that there was going to be lightning just lighting up the entire room. And you know what? That probably would have been a deadlier scenario. And much like Matt and Candace thinking that Arizax was casting Raise the Dead, sometimes my players have better ideas than I do. And speaking of not following my own advice, how about that encounter with the spiders? You know, I didn't really understand why the players just didn't burn the web out. I don't know what the spiders would have done except for try to escape. There may not have even been a fight after that. But again, me not taking my own advice and not changing the conditions of the encounter, I don't really know. You know, I had only written in that there were a couple of spiders in that area. So... Probably not the worst thing that I didn't change the conditions of the encounter. Uh, And they just kind of fought both of the spiders, but uh, I suppose if I'd put a little bit more thought into planning it, I could have thrown something unexpected at them. Maybe a swarm of little baby spiders. That would have been unexpected and gross. All right, so those are my thoughts on what has happened so far. Now let's talk a bit about what's going to come up next. The heroes are going to continue deeper into the underground. Again, I think they may be down here for, I don't know, several sessions at least. I want to get across the feeling that that these ruins beneath Pharaoh's Point are very, very difficult to get to. So I'm going to throw some rust monsters at them. But other than that, soon they're going to cross paths with some iron guardians that are scouting out the tunnels trying to find their way down to the ruins. Uh, The reason that these things are down here, uh, even though Agaran has sent his agents down into the depths to try to find the ruins, so far they've not succeeded in finding the ruins, or at least returning from them. Hmm. So he's growing impatient, and he's sending down these Iron Guardians to basically do his work for them, but that won't stop him from getting even more impatient. We'll probably get to that maybe in the next Behind the Screen episode of what he'll do, hopefully by the time the players are on their way back up. The players will encounter the Fathoms fighters. Uh, This faction, you know, doing their job of preventing people from getting down into the further depths beneath Pharaoh's Point because of the dangers that are thought to be down there. In my last campaign planning episode, I had sketched out some rough ideas about things to include that would engage the players. And with the Fathoms fighters, they will, the heroes will encounter Ketvar Kiaro, the non-player character who was in the Warriors Alliance with Spruce Lee. So hopefully that will get Spruce Lee sort of invested into the welfare of the Fathoms fighters because they are going to have a choice to make. There are agents of another faction down here, one that we have not heard of or come across before, and that is Bearheart's Brigade. Now, these are individuals loyal to Ulrich Bearheart, a character who has not been seen or mentioned previously. He's the son of the previous ruler of the realm before Kalira took control. Now, when I was planning things out, when I was sort of doing my world building, it made sense to me that 
the previous rulers of Iterin, because it wasn't Kalira until the war ended, if they had survived or if any of their offspring had survived, they would kind of have an interest in reclaiming power. So I guess here is perhaps spoiler number one in terms of storyline. Bearheart's brigade and Ulrich Bearheart conspired to invite and to summon Agarand into Pharaoh's Point under false pretenses under the agreement that if Agarand and Arizax could defeat Kalira, Ulrich Bearheart would reclaim control and allow the Dragonborn to plunder the ruins underneath Pharaoh's Point because Ulrich doesn't know what's down there and doesn't see that there's any danger associated with it. And he's just making a deal, something that will put him back in power. So how are the Fathoms fighters involved with this? Well, the leader of the particular encampment that the heroes will get to is loyal to Ulrich Bearhart. It has been working in secret with tipping off Agaran's agents so that they can avoid the Fathoms fighters. What I plan to do is tip off the players somehow that this leader has a hidden agenda and give them the choice as to whether or not they want to help the Fathoms fighters deal with it. If they do manage to somehow expose this, let's call him a double agent, for what he is, then they'll definitely have one, an ally with Ketvar and whoever the second-in-command happens to be. If they don't, though, what are the consequences of them leaving this person in charge? Maybe once they're finished in the ruins and they head back up, Maybe this double agent has engineered the surrender of this particular detachment of Fathoms fighters and the players now have to carefully navigate an area that is now heavy with enemies. Maybe the consequence is more dire, like maybe a lot of the Fathoms fighters have been captured or killed. Maybe Spruce will have to deal with the knowledge that his failure to act resulted in the death of his friend from the Warriors Alliance, the death of Ketvar Kiaro. In the past, I really haven't had much luck getting my players to really care for NPCs. Uh, it's something that I'm really trying to, to do, but you know what, if your players don't bite, then there's not much you can do about it. But whatever happens, if they choose not to help, there will be consequences of some sort. Uh, I won't plan out anything concrete yet, we'll just sort of see how it goes. Something else that having several factions of opposing viewpoints helps to establish in your campaigns is the idea that there is this larger world and that there is this established history, established long-running conflicts. Uh, it gives your world a sense of depth and also hammers home the point that, you know what, these sorts of things are happening regardless of what your players choose to do. Okay, so once they leave the encampment, once they get past the Fathoms fighters, what's going to happen? There are a lot of different elements that I still want to incorporate into this particular part of the adventure, and I was having trouble keeping track of them all, so I've kind of broken them down into a list. The main elements that I want to include are troglodytes, some sort of creature from the Underdark, like another deep gnome or a drow, for Giladob to interact with. Another group of adventurers that are really Agaran's agents, also exploring the depths, trying to get to the pillars 
a large monster, something for Vanna White Helsing to take particular interest in. Maybe something like an Umber Hulk. Myconids, the fungal mushroom people. The Iron Titan prototype, the rules for madness, which we may not get to this episode. And one, for now, top secret ingredient that we definitely won't get to today. And lastly, one element that I will hopefully include is Shigar Stoneskin, the leader, the missing leader of the Warriors Alliance. What's he doing down there? Hmm. I had asked for some input in the Dungeon Master group as to what sorts of uh, creatures the party should run into. Someone had suggested troglodytes, which I thought was uh, very appropriate, uh, given that they are closely related to the Underdark. Uh, It would likely spark some kind of interest with Gilladab, with the understanding that there is really no way for him to get to the Underdark, at least that anyone knows about. He would really have to wonder, you know, what are these creatures doing here? Really, the answer would probably be something simple like they were here before the passages were sealed off, before that plane was barred by Elwyn's device. And they've just kind of had this single tribe that has been existing beneath Pharaoh's Point for decades, not really thriving, but not going utterly extinct. Regarding a non-player character to interact with Gilladab, uh, I will probably choose a drow for this, uh, but what would a drow be doing down there, and why would the drow cross paths with our heroes? Well, because I don't like anything that's not at least a little bit complicated, I want to have this drow acting as the guide for Agaran's agents, who are also trying to make it down to the ruins. Now, I don't want the heroes to encounter them all at once. What I'm going to do is have the heroes come across this drow who would be injured uh, as a result of the troglodytes attacking them, and the drow gets separated uh, from Agaran's agents temporarily. They will injure the drow, use her as bait, lure the heroes into a, uh, an enclosed area, and then move in for the kill. So having the heroes rescue this drow from an uncertain fate will hopefully make her a sympathetic character right off the bat. I really do want to engage uh, Gilladob and try to make a tempting offer for him to basically help in trying to find a way home. I think the drow would probably be of the opinion that The problems of the surface don't really affect the people of the Underdark, so what have you got to lose by turning your back on everyone here? It's very, very cynical and cold, but also pragmatic, you know, if you're just trying to get back home. I've sketched out a few characteristics for this Drow non-player character. Her motivation is mainly, as I've already said, finding her way back home. She's working as a guide to amass some coin to pay a wizard either in Pharaoh's Point or outside of Pharaoh's Point, I really haven't decided yet, uh, to create some kind of uh, magical artifact or device that would allow her to uh, navigate the tunnels even more fluidly than she already does, using some kind of 
divination magic in, built into this device. Uh, hopefully, she would hope that that would get her home somehow. Now, this motivation also serves as an opportunity for the characters if they are really not on her side, but want to engage her services, they can sort of buy out her contract with Agarand, so to speak. Uh, she would have some strings attached because betraying Agarand is not a proposition that uh, is taken lightly. But you know what? The heroes have all this gold and nothing to do with it. But if they alienate her somehow or kill her or otherwise turn her into an enemy, what are the consequences of that? She's only separated from the group that she was leading, Agaran's agents, uh, very temporarily. Uh, and you know what? They're going to want to find their guide back. It's going to be even easier for them to find her if now she's in the company of four other individuals. So Agaran's group will track down the player characters. I haven't thought too much about what their composition is. I would like it to be comprised mostly of Dragonborn. Probably put in a Dragonborn Barbarian, maybe a straight-up Dragonborn Fighter and or Ranger as well. Get some ranged attacks in there. Uh, I think a Human Cleric or a Tiefling Cleric maybe. I don't know. A Cleric, a Spellcaster of some type. And lastly, a Mysterious Elf Monk of the Way of the Shadow. Now who's this Elf Monk, you ask? Well... Somebody who is involved in yet another faction. And this NPC would be a little bit more directly involved, even more so than Ketvar, more involved with Spruce Lee. So in Spruce's backstory, he had been a part of a monastery where he learned to fight. And that monastery at some point was destroyed during the War of Ashes. And he never really learned what happened to the people, the other trainees, the other acolytes in the monastery. So this other faction, um, I really haven't thought even of a name yet, but I thought it might make sense from the viewpoint of a very twisted, apocalyptic worldview to have a group that saw the War of Ashes and thought, you know what, this is the way that things should be. The world was meant to end, life was meant to end, because it's the will of the gods, you know, something like that. Basically a death cult. And so this monk is someone from Spruce's monastery. Now, if things are too chaotic in this adventure, I may choose to place this monk NPC somewhere else, somewhere further down the line. But I'm sort of wanting to insert this NPC here and have them vanish very quickly to build the suspense over time. You know, we'll get very brief fleeting glimpses of this group. Basically what they're working towards is to bring about the end. They think that the end should have happened three decades ago. The world is living on borrowed time. It's time to accept the fate that apocalypse should have happened. And they are working towards that. And they will side with anyone who they think can achieve them that. In this case... That person is Agarand, but that might change in the future. Who knows? So we'll bring in Agarand's agents back into the picture. They may fight, they may not. It may result in sort of a race for, to the finish line to see who can get there first. Uh, maybe the players want to get ahead of this group so they can set up an ambush of some kind. But if they don't have that drow on their side, and that drow is still leading 
these agents, is still guiding them. The consequence of them not having the dry on their side might be that the agents make it to the pillars first. Wouldn't that be something? They get down there, looking around for a pillar, and oh, there's one right in front of you, it's already up, and guess what? All the gems are gone. Alright, so let's look at our checklist and see how we're doing. We've got troglodytes, check. Underdark NPC, the drow, check. Agaran's agents, check. What's next on our list? Large monster and myconids. Okay, large monster is pretty easy. Uh, I think I'll probably go with an Umberhulk because it has that cool hypnotic gaze ability. The exact name escapes me off the top of my head, but it has that ability to confuse anyone looking at it within 30 feet, which is... so that'll be interesting. If they get into a fight with Agaran's Dragonborn agents down there, I think the noise, the clatter, and the chaos of that would attract this monster. Especially if things are going very poorly for one side or another. You know what? Let me walk that back. If things are going very poorly for Agaran's group, because I don't want them to get killed off right away, I'll have this Umber Hulk show up, give the Dragonborn a chance to get out of there. And that should also signal to the players that, hey, you know what? If they're running, maybe we should run too. Because if unless they're at full strength, I don't know that they can easily take on one of these things. And I think we'd have a good opportunity here to move this from a simple race to the finish line to something really tense. If the Umber Hulk or whatever creature it is, I'm not 100% decided yet, but let's say I'm 80% decided on the Umber Hulk. If this creature is hunting them, then they have to make their way through these caves, and I could be telling them that there are these noises that are following them around, and they have to, maybe they decide not to make camp, maybe they suffer a level of exhaustion, because they just want to keep going to get away from this thing. Because having things go from a troglodyte attack, to negotiating with this drow, to crossing paths with Agaran's agents, possibly, or maybe likely, another combat scenario there, to a potential combat scenario with his large monster, it would be a good time to maybe slow things down, especially if they're kind of injured and, and are running low on resources, to build the tension towards whatever is coming next. Personally, I think if they are fighting Agaran's dragonborn, and then this Umberhulk busts in and ruins the party, uh, I think they're going to be probably pretty hurt by the end of it. And it leads me to something that I had heard on another podcast called The GM's Guide, hosted by Dan Felder. There aren't too many newer episodes, but I really recommend this podcast uh, to any uh, DMs or GMs out there. Uh, there's some really, really useful stuff in the episodes. And even though uh, they're not being put out on a regular basis anymore, it's still really, really worthwhile. Uh, he had said that if you're going to hand your players a defeat, and even if it's not the DM that's handing them a defeat, but maybe it's just circumstance or bad rolls of the dice, you should be offsetting that with a victory. It can't go from one tense, death-defying situation, one close call to another. There at least needs to be a break, a safe haven at some point, for the players to feel like they can accomplish something before you go and kick their ass again. So, 
hopefully what I'm trying to do, what I would like to do, is at the end of this encounter with this Umber Hulk, I want that to be tough. I want them to not feel like they've really won that one. Like maybe they've escaped by the skin of their teeth. Maybe they haven't quite escaped yet because this thing is still hunting them and they're desperately trying to get away from it. I think this is where I'll bring in the Myconids. Perhaps the Umber Hulk is so close to them that they are basically almost running through the tunnels and it finally catches up and they are looking at their character sheets and their hit points are distressingly low. And then the air around them is filled with these luminescent spores. And this Umber Hulk really understands what's about to happen and knows what these spores are capable of, turns around and decides to save the fight for another day. The Umber Hulk, being a semi-intelligent creature and something that lives in close proximity to these fungal beings, would probably know that these spores can do weird things to its brain, and it doesn't like that. So it's going to get out of there. But, actually now having said that, I'm wondering if that will make the players really afraid of these mushroom people. Because if the Umber Hulk is even scared of them, is that signaling that maybe they should be afraid as well? Who knows? The the Myconids will certainly not be the first to attack. Including the Myconids was also a recommendation from somebody in the Dungeon Masters group. Thank you, Brandon. I'm really hoping that the players don't attack right away. I would like for the Myconids to be this safe house for them so that they can recuperate a little bit. I also think it would be really cool for them to use their spore ability to telepathically communicate with the heroes. They can get some information, like where exactly they should go, where they should avoid. And the Myconids can also drop a hint that there had been a metal man through there not long ago. Now, I think the players would assume that they are talking about maybe an Iron Guardian that had slipped through. But no, the Myconids are talking about Shigar Stoneskin wearing his immaculate armor. Is his armor immaculate? I have no idea. Let's say it is. Or maybe it's not. Who knows? But he's, he's encased in metal armor. So they call him the Metal Man. He's down there for reasons that, you know what? Uh, I don't want to get into today. You know what? We're going to save it for next time. We're going to save it for next episode because that will be the big, a big, big twist. I think the main one that we're building up towards that we won't get probably for months yet. So the Mechonics can give them some help, let them rest up, give them a safe zone to recuperate, send them on their way with some information that is helpful, maybe that will help them get back on track that is, if they choose to engage these creatures in a friendly way. If not, then all bets are off. And of course, once they get down to the, really to the ruins, the proper ruins, there's going to be some madness checks, because there's something down there. The very nature of the ruins themselves are offensive to the sane mind. Also, for reasons we'll get into next time. But aside from madness, and it will probably be just short-term madness, I don't want to hit them with long-term or indefinite, at least not yet, there will be the Iron Titan prototype that Elwyn warned them about. Now what I think would be really cool, I'm hoping they do this, is deliberately lure the Umber Hulk down to this spot so it can fight the Iron Titan. I'm not going to make that the only way that they can do this, but the Iron Titan is going to be a very difficult enemy to fight. 
So much so, if they manage to destroy it, I'm going to place that diamond that they need from their list of ingredients for Elwyn's device as a fuel source or something for this Iron Titan prototype. Maybe they'll destroy it. Maybe they will have the Umber Hulk come down and fight it to distract the prototype so that they can copy out the inscriptions without being attacked. And maybe just distracting the prototype will be good enough for them to get the job done and then get out. But if they go that extra mile and somehow figure out a way to destroy it, then yeah, they might catch a glint of something in the destroyed wreckage of that prototype. And guess what? It's that diamond. But you know, maybe the players will say, hey, maybe we don't want to destroy this thing because if there are others coming after it, maybe we should leave it in some kind of semi-operational condition. But that's sort of where Shigar Stoneskin comes into play as well. He's down there for the purpose of protecting those pillars. But not everything is as it seems, and we will get to him and the madness and the secret ingredient on the next Behind the Screen episode. Thanks very much for listening to this. I hope it's been helpful. I look forward to the discussions in the Dungeon Master group if you're not already a part of it. Go join. I love to have new people join. I love to see that little notification that says new member request. Makes my day. But for now, we're just going to let the outro music take it away because it's so epic. Like dun dun dun.